Well, if you've got a Bible, you'll want to turn to Mark chapter 1. If you're turning, welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. This morning, we're starting a new sermon series that will take us through Easter. And since we've just celebrated the birth of Jesus at Christmas, we're going to be continuing on with his life and ministry as we look at the gospel of Mark over the next three and a half months. No, many of you are engaged in professions and fields that require continuing education. Through the year, you're required to go and refresh yourself with material, and some of you even have to take exams so that you can stay sharp and stay effective in your vocation. In fact, it's hard to think of a vocation that doesn't require some form of continued education. You experience it as a physician or a lawyer or an electrician or an educator or a first responder. Continued education is there so that you don't get so caught in the daily grind of your vocation that you forget the basics. And when you go back to the basics, it's always surprising when you do that, that you learn new things. You see things that you haven't seen before. You learn to apply your skills in a different way. And as we study the gospel of Mark over the next three and a half months, it's so important for us to remember that as followers of Jesus, we never need to spend too much time away from the gospel accounts, which are found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four books in your Bible that provide accounts for you of the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we go back, it can feel like we're going back to continued education in some sense. But we're doing it so that we don't get bogged down in the daily grind so much that we forget who Jesus is and what he came to do. And the hope is that whether this is your first time to study the book of Mark or whether this is your 25th time to study the book of Mark, you learn new things. That you see the beauty of Jesus in a way you've never considered it before, perhaps. Mark is the shortest and the earliest of the four Gospels. Mark is the author of this particular gospel, and from what we know in other parts of the New Testament, Mark was a close friend and disciple of Peter. And you might know that Peter was one of Jesus' closest followers and friends, and Peter was an eyewitness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter relays what he knows about Jesus to Mark, who in turn relays those facts about Jesus to us through his gospel. And so in this account of, that we receive from Mark, we are basically two people removed from Jesus, a remarkably close testimony to his life and ministry. On top of that, scholarship places the date of Mark's gospel in the mid to late 50s, which is so important because it means that this gospel was written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And this is crucial because modern scholarship has often tried to convince us that the Gospels were written later and they were uh, made to give us a picture of Jesus that fits the narrative that the church needed in order to grab hold of power. Basically, they make Jesus whoever they need him to be. Well, with such an early date, that means Mark was putting his Gospel out to folks who could confirm or reject his account. Those who knew the story and would not allow any fabrications to stand. It's a remarkably early testimony to the life and ministry of Jesus. So, what we're going to do over the next few months is we're going to be looking at a remarkably close and a remarkably early eyewitness account of Jesus. And we're going to be asking, who was Jesus? 
What did he do? What did he say? And this morning, we're going to start at the beginning, looking at Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. You can follow along as I read the passage printed for you in your bulletin. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Let me pray for us before we consider it together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this account of your life. We thank you for the way uh, that we can know you, that we can know what you've said, that we can know what you've done by way of this account. And we pray that as we look at it this morning, that you would open our hearts to receive what you would have to say to us. We believe that you still speak. And we pray that you would do that even this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder when the last time was that you were really angry with someone. Maybe you're angry with someone right now. You likely know that when you're angry, there's lots of different ways that you can express your anger just so that the other person knows just how much they blew it. One way we can express anger is through critical words. Maybe you're angry at your husband or your wife or something that he or she did. And in order to kind of vent your anger, you say something that criticizes him. Something like, you're so selfish, all you ever do is think about yourself. Or maybe you even couch it in nicer language, saying something like, I'm only telling you this for your good. Or you start the sentence, with all due respect, which is a horrible way to start a sentence, by the way. Critical words are often our choice when it comes to expressing anger. Aggressive action is another way that we sometimes choose to express our anger. Kids kids in the congregation, maybe your parents really make you mad. And the way that you show them that they've made you mad is you stomp upstairs to your room and you slam your door as hard as you can. Maybe you throw something or maybe you have a sibling, a brother or a sister, and you express your anger by hitting or pushing them. And even though it's not right, it's easy to get our message across with how we act. Sarcastic remarks are another way that we can express anger embarrassing someone and then saying something like, I was only kidding, can't you take a joke? Sarcasm allows us to really say anything that we want without actually having to take responsibility for what we have to say. Another way, though, we can express anger, and one of the most effective ways is the silent treatment. Completely withdrawing from someone who's made you angry. 
We express our frustration and our anger by withdrawing our presence, our concern, our care from that person. And this form of expressing anger can be really hurtful because at least the other forms signal that you're still engaged. The other forms at least let the other person know that you still care about them. The silent treatment comes along and lets the other person know that you're out completely. That they're not even worth your emotional energy. In fact, you know that the opposite of love is not hate. Because when we hate something, we're actually showing that we care very much for that specific thing or that specific person. In reality, the opposite of love is apathy. It's not caring at all. It's completely withdrawing. Giving someone the silent treatment can be devastating. And as we pick up here in the beginning of the book of Mark, it's important to know that God's people had been experiencing over 400 years of the silent treatment from God. It's what's known in history as the intertestamental period, the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. Over 400 years have passed, and God's people have heard nothing from God. These are known as the 400 silent years. And the silence must have been hard to bear for God's people, especially when you consider the slavery and the oppression to other nations that characterized much of their existence during this time. In the middle of all their troubles, God's people must have been wondering, where is God? Does he really care? What is he doing? Why doesn't he show up to help us? And I think you and I can relate to these people who experienced God's silence at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Because we too oftentimes experience circumstances and seasons in our life where we wonder, where is God? Does he really care about what's happening to me? Why doesn't he show up? What is he doing? We've all felt this way at one point or another. Times when you're discouraged, things seem to be getting worse, not better. Your marriage is not what you expected and it only seems to be growing colder. Relationship with your children is strained and it's not the family dynamic that you'd hoped for when you started out on the parenting journey. You've been struggling with self-doubt and depression for years. You live with the secrets of being abused by a close family member. The temptation that constantly seems to be nagging at you, it just won't go away. The heartbreaking news that someone that you love has been diagnosed with cancer. The things in life that we experience that leave us wondering, where is God? Does he really care? Why doesn't he do something? And we slowly begin to wonder if we've done something wrong. Maybe God's angry. Maybe he's disappointed. Maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe we deserve the silent treatment. And it's against this backdrop that we see Mark pick up his account of Jesus' life and ministry. God's people had grown accustomed to not hearing from God. And now after 400 long years, God is about to speak once again. But after that much time, God's people aren't accustomed to hearing from God, at least in a prophetic way. So to get his people's attention and to wake them up, God sends a messenger to prepare the way for what God is about to do after all these years of silence. In our passage, we see John the Baptist's ministry burst upon a surprised Jewish world. He comes as the last Old Testament prophet, yet 
He makes his appearance on the pages of our New Testament, which is interesting. One commentator calls John the Baptist the first century Paul Revere, calling out the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming, alarming God's people into serious preparation for what he's about to do. And the good news that our passage reminds us of this morning, and really the main point, is that God does not remain silent. God does not remain silent. We see that God breaks through in the most unexpected ways after God's people had likely given up hope, when things seem most dark, God shows them that he's still there, that he still cares for them, that he's got a plan to rescue them from their slavery and their oppression. Here at the beginning of his gospel, which is a word that literally means joyful news, Mark tells us a bit about John the Baptist. He's a strange character. In verse 4, we see that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We see in verse 5 that people were going to meet him to be baptized. And a part of the process was that people were confessing their sins and they were repenting. And repenting is just a fancy theological word, meaning they were changing their life direction. They were turning around and walking in a different way. In a sense, John's job was to get people ready for what God was about to do. John is kind of like an appetizer, the thing that gets your taste buds going for the main course, or like a marquee on the highway that points to something bigger and better. He was sent to heighten God's God's people's senses, to put them in a place where they could receive the good news that was about to come their way. Basically, John the Baptist is asking a very simple question here at the beginning of Mark. He's asking, are you okay or are you not okay? Are you okay or are you not okay? If you're not okay, you need to go see John the Baptist. If you're okay, then you don't. You see that the Pharisees and the experts of the law would not go out to see John the Baptist. They thought they were okay. And the question for us this morning is, are you okay? Or are you not okay? That's how this gospel starts. The great visit is about to happen. The baptism of John is God's way of cleaning up people for this visit, and it's people's way of showing that they really want to meet the visitor as a way of them tangibly confessing that they're not okay, they go see John the Baptist. It's a way of communicating that they need God's new world that's about to come onto the scene. And all of a sudden in verse 9, we see that we see what John has been pointing to. Verse 9 says this, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus is the one who John was getting people ready to receive. Jesus is the word that's finally coming from God after all of these years of silence. The one who has the ability to set people free. Jesus is everything God wants to say in a person. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones says it at the beginning of your bulletin in the quote there. Jesus is everything God wanted to say to the world in a person. God is saying, here is the man. Here is this man. And it's everything that I want to say, everything I want to reveal, everything I want to do, everything I want people to hear, see, and believe. If you want to know anything about me, if you want to hear anything from me, if you want to please me, you've got to get together with him. 
And it may not strike you as important, but the fact that Jesus was baptized by John is remarkable. It's really the aspect of this passage that jumps off the page and stands out. The fact that Jesus would have asked to be baptized by John. In another gospel, we see John protest the idea of baptizing Jesus. He didn't think that he was worthy to do it. John thought that he was the one who needed to be baptized by Christ. After all, John predicted Jesus as the baptizer, not the baptizee. But what we see Jesus doing here is remarkable because it shows us just how low Jesus is willing to go to bring us life and freedom. Instead of taking the highest place of honor, instead of showing his power and his authority, what we see from Jesus is that he stoops down and he identifies with normal people, with sinners. To be sure, Jesus did not need to be baptized. He had no sin. He was completely perfect, but he did it in order to show solidarity with you and me. From the very beginning, it's what his life is all about, always identifying with sinners, with those he came to save. I love how Frederick Dale Bruner, who's a biblical scholar and commentator on the book of Mark, he says it this way. I consider this incident Jesus's first miracle, the miracle of humility. The first thing Jesus does for the human race is go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus's whole life would be like this. It's well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves, and it deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus stays low at our level, identifying with us at every point, becoming completely one with us in our humanity. Look, even though Jesus came to identify with us, we also see from this passage that he's also very different from us. We see something extraordinary that has not happened with any other baptism in history in verses 10 and 11. We would probably be, our jaws would still be on the ground if it had happened this morning. It says, when he came up out of the water immediately, the heavens were torn open and the spirit descended on Jesus like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The audible voice of God sounds forth here in Mark chapter 1, placing a banner over the life of Jesus. And only twice in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, does the Father speak directly from heaven. Here and at the transfiguration. In both times, we see him say the same thing. That Jesus is his son and that he's deeply pleased with Jesus. It's as if the Father wants us to know how much we have in Jesus. Jesus' baptism was God's visual and oral way of saying, Dear world, this is it. Here he is. And it's pretty clear right from the beginning that even though Jesus knows us and wants to identify us, he is not like us. He's something different, something beautiful. Mark immediately in verse 1 identifies him as the Son of God. And it's exactly what you and I need. Someone who knows us, someone who comes to identify with us and be with us, but someone who is not like us. We need someone who has the ability to know us, but also lift us up to freedom. And that's exactly who we find in Christ. We see from the beginning of Mark that God refuses to remain silent. 
In the midst of our difficulties, our struggles, our failures and temptations, God sends his son for us to identify with us so that we might hear God's words of affirmation and approval in our lives. And by way of application, we've got to ask two questions this morning. The first question is, are you in a place where you can receive God's word? Are you in a place where you can receive God's word? It's really what John the Baptist was doing. He was getting people ready to hear God's word. If God showed up in your life, would you even have the ability to recognize it? Would you even want that to happen? The thing that often keeps us from recognizing God, from wanting him to show up, is that we've gotten comfortable with the silence. We've learned to manage our lives without God in many ways. We've grown blind to the things that enslave us. We've learned to live with a lack of health, spiritually speaking. Sometimes we get so used to the silence that we want it to stay that way. Learning to listen would be too hard. Maybe we're scared of what we might hear. Just the other day, I heard a friend say, I had limped along for so many years that the limp now seemed normal. And I think we can resonate with that. And John, in a sense, is trying to wake us up by reminding us that there is more that we can have. That we need to be set free. That we can experience life and freedom. It is on offer. You just have to put yourself in a position to receive God's word. It's kind of like sleep. You can't force sleep. In fact, the more you force yourself to sleep, the less likely you are to fall asleep. But you can put yourself in the right place and in the right conditions for sleep to happen. It's really good to lay down in your bed, to turn off the light, to cover yourself up, to have a soft pillow. Sleep is a gift that we can welcome by being in the right place. We can't force it to happen. And it's the same way with the gift of God's word. Are we placing ourselves in the right places to receive it? Are we reading our Bibles? Are we engaged when we listen to God's word preached on a Sunday morning? Are we praying and asking God to open our eyes? That's the first question. Are we placing ourselves in the right places? Are we making it easy or hard to hear God's message? We could also talk a little bit about how sin clogs up our ears. How oftentimes when we're engaged in disobedience and sin, we can't hear as clearly as God would want us to hear. So that's another question for us to consider this morning. Are we placing ourselves positively in a place where we can hear God's word? The second question we've got to ask ourselves is, will you believe what you hear? Not just are you in a place to hear it, but are you going to believe what you hear when you hear it? And before we can answer that question, we've got to know something important about this passage. And it's that as sons and daughters of God tied to Christ, we hear these words of God in verse 11 addressed to us. I like how N.T. Wright summarizes it when he says this. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point, that when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, He says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are united to Christ. 
He has come to identify himself with us and we get to identify ourselves with him. We are so tied to him, so hidden in him, so covered by him that when God sees us, he sees the beauty of Jesus. Recently, I saw a video going around about a photographer who asks to take random people's photos for a project. And when the person being photographed asks, what is this project about? The photographer responds and says, I'm taking pictures of things I find beautiful. I'm taking pictures of things I find beautiful. And then she would record their response. And when the people being photographed hear this, their responses are remarkable. Some laugh. Some say, thank you. Some begin to cry. A lot of them begin to blush. Some can't believe it. Some even get angry at being told that they're beautiful. They refuse to accept it. And it made me think about how often we respond to God's words to us. And I think we've got to feel this at an emotional level. We're not all about emotions here. As you might know, we are Presbyterian after all. But we've got to hear this. God looks at us and says, you are my dear child, I am delighted in you. And we are not used to hearing that. We are not used to hearing that and we don't know what to do with it a lot of times. It's so different than what we'd expect to hear. It's so different from the voices that we normally hear in our own hearts and the voices that come to us from outside of ourselves. Normally we hear voices that say, you're not enough. You failed again. You can't change. You're dirty. But these voices are lies. What is true of Jesus is true of us. And in our adoption, we are united to Christ through faith, covered by him. And we're allowed to hear the words, the loving words of God addressed to us. In God's sight, you are as beautiful as Jesus. And that is hard for us to really believe. But if you're able to hear these words of God addressed to you, these are the only words that can change you and make you new. They will empower your life in this fallen world like no other words can. God is speaking. He's never stopped. The question for us is, are we in a place to hear it? And are we going to believe what we hear? And if we move out into this fallen world imagining that God is a bully or that he's disappointed in you or that he's threatening you, it makes sense that you'll fail at the first temptation. It makes sense that you'll struggle to operate in this fallen world. But if we remember these words that God speaks to us, we'll find our way in this fallen world. Equipped for what comes our way, God's words to us are words of love, words of life. And once you do believe, you're called to live out of your new identity. It's so important that this is the beginning of Christ's ministry. Next, he's sent out into the desert to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. And if he did not know who he was, it would not have been good. He lives out of this new identity. And we're called to as well to remind ourselves every day that you're a child of God, one with whom God is pleased. And this identity has the power to change your life, to change the way you relate with other people. You can be humble, not having to prove your worth anymore. 
It changes the way you relate with yourself. You can be confident that you're loved by God, accepted for who you are. You can be yourself comfortable in your own skin. And these words also change the way you relate to God. You can follow his commands out of gratitude, not in order to earn his favor or his love, knowing that you're already perfectly loved in Christ. The words we receive from God, that we are children and that we're loved, that we're delighted in, are words of life that can send us out into this world able to face the discouragements and the temptations and the struggles that will come. God does not remain silent. He speaks to us most profoundly through Jesus. And I'll end with this. In the book of Mark, we see Jesus more clearly. In fact, the further you read, the more clear Jesus becomes. And as we continue our journey through the book toward the end, we see that Jesus is the one who ultimately endured God's silence unlike anyone else. While on the cross, he cried out to his father, and for the first time from all eternity past, Jesus received no answer. He got the silent treatment from his father so that you and I can receive the words from the father that bring life to us. He was one who at the end of his life is utterly rejected and disapproved by his father. He was one who endured God's disapproval, fully identifying himself with us, taking our punishment upon himself. And because of that, you and I get to hear God's words of approval. We get kind words from God towards us. You can be set free from oppression and slavery. You can experience life and freedom but it's only possible as you completely trust Jesus, the one who came to show you God's love. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful. Thankful for the way that you have come to show us who God is, come to show us what he is like. Thankful for the way that you are like us and you've identified yourself with us, but you are unlike us one who is able to bring us freedom from sin and reconciliation with the Father. And through you, we get to hear God's kind, gracious words that we are dearly loved, that God the Father delights in us. Lord, we pray that that would be impressed more and more upon our hearts and that we would live out of that new identity on a daily basis. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.